Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and today we're going to take you down to the uh, Nature for Life rally. We're going to uh, move on to talking about a great book that's going to come out uh, being launched on December the 3rd, uh, Sticking It to the Man, and uh, we're going to follow that up with uh, the 165th anniversary of the Eureka. Spirit of Eureka had their dinner down at the MUA on Thursday night, and there were some rousing speeches, but we're going to bring you Joan Coxedge and uh, an introduction from Dirk, who's from Spirit of Eureka, plenty of other things from that that you'll probably hear later, probably over the summer period. Before we kick off, a couple of events that are coming up that you might be interested in. Julian Assange event, uh, 4th of December, 6.30 to 9, State Library Village Theatre. It's a, a big deal. Uh, more and more information is coming out about Julian Assange and his supporters are getting the word out to people and that should be a very interesting discussion. If you can't get to that, you might be interested in a film that's on at uh, Solidarity Hall at uh, Victoria Trades Hall on the same night. Pity, but anyway, it's a conf- conflict, six to the nine. Uh, it's uh, the plan that came from the bottom up. It's a doco about how workers might take control of the work. Uh, and produce better products. Uh, it's about a it's a case study, effectively, from England, nineteen seventy six, uh, from Lucas Aerospace. It's uh, a nineteen uh, a two thousand and eighteen film, recent documentary, which you might find interesting. And a couple of good news things: the Insurer Integrity Bill was voted down thirty four to thirty four in the Senate. Jackie Lambie and Pauline Hanson from One Nation voted against it, so it, uh, they're expecting that there'll be another uh, title fight starting in February. So it's not over, but it is a nice Christmas present for everybody. Another great piece of news was that uh, the Maribyrnong Council uh, over in Footscray didn't, uh, wasn't able to actually give off uh, a piece of public land to, um, they voted down or didn't uh, continue with the uh, notion that they were going to hand over a section of prime real estate along the river that belongs to the public to uh, a commercial interest soccer club, one of the most uh, uh, moneyed up, cashed up uh, 
clubs in Australia, sporting clubs in Australia, Melbourne Storm, uh, it was voted down. So the community had a win over in Footscray. But uh, we're going to go straight down to the Parliament steps because we're running short of time this morning. I I went down there on uh, Thursday and uh, this particular rally for uh, uh, nature for life brought uh, people from right across Victoria who have spent a lifetime, many lifetimes, trying to protect their uh, natural areas in their local communities. And this ranged from beaches down near uh, Warrnambool that are being slated for uh, use for racehorses across to uh, Wombat National Park, uh, a whole range of parks right across Victoria as they work towards uh, supporting legislation that uh, uh, will protect or hopefully uh, move towards protecting some of the uh, uh, nature that is under attack in this uh, time of climate emergency. Uh, I first spoke to some hunger strikers. You might have noticed that there's a couple of people who were on hunger strike for the climate um, over the last 10 days. So I was able to speak to them first. G'day, I'm from 3CR and I was wondering if you could speak to me about what's going on here. Um, I'll try. Yeah. Okay. Now, Dan over there and I are both both doing it. I don't know if you, you've talked to him. He's a lot more um, expert than I am with the facts and things. But uh, I'm here fasting uh, in an effort to raise awareness of just how serious the problem is with regard to climate change. Uh, somebody just says it was something great that I'm doing. I said, no, great is the climate change. You know, what I'm doing, just nothing. But I think we need to, you know, adjust our idea of what great is. And we need to see that this is, this is uh, it's serious. It's really serious. And, and people are going to literally die. This is the 11th day, right? Are you feeling okay? Amazingly so. Yeah, I can't believe it. I think part, partly because I've just been sitting, you know, I haven't been doing much of the interviewing. So we'll see how it goes from today on, yeah. Have you had much reaction from passers-by? Because you're usually down at uh, Flinders Street Station, right? That's right. Actually, it was a lot more uh, uh, reactionary down there. Um, it's pretty good up here, you know, it, but it also means, you know, we can see more people down at Flinders Street, whereas we don't see as many people up here. What, what have people said to you? <laughs> I wouldn't want to repeat it. Oh, really? <laughs> so, so are you there all day and night? I, I was only the first night overnight, camped at Flinders Street. Uh, now I have a, an RV just parked about 50 metres away. And at 7 o'clock I go down there and uh, crash for a bit and try to get back here by 8 in the morning. Is this a personal decision? Well, nobody made me do it. Oh, no, I mean, I mean, why did you think it was a good idea? What? Some people might say it's extreme. Well, I think that's what I was trying to uh, cover before when I said that it, it's far from extreme. The, the climate change is extreme, you know. And until we get, you know, a real concept of, of the extremity of it, you know, uh, this is global. It's, it's a threat to all of us. Uh, the problem, of course, is because we can't see it immediately. And so we have to do something extreme. It's a bit like the lobsters in a, hot, uh, in a, in a pot. Exactly, exactly. And, and they don't realize it until it's too late. And it's hard, hard to make that clear and get that message across to people. Thanks for talking to me.
Yeah, I'm from 3CR and I've just been speaking to your compatriot. Can you talk to me about uh, the hunger strike and uh, what you're aiming to do with this? Yeah, sure. So uh, today's day 10 of, of uh, the global uh, Extinction Rebellion hunger strike. And uh, yeah, it's been, been 10 days since my last meal. And uh, I, uh, I've been uh, interested in, in uh, climate science for almost 20 years. I wrote, wrote my first letter to a politician in 2001. And I've done all the right things, signed the petitions and, and all the rest of it. And, and nothing, nothing has worked. And uh, this year I decided to join Extinction Rebellion and, and start protesting and, and um, was part of Spring Rebellion. And the government just continues to ignore the facts and ignore the science. 11,000 scientists uh, have signed an open letter declaring climate emergency, but the government just ignores it. So uh, this is where we're at. Uh, I'm here to fight for my nieces and nephews' future, and I, I wouldn't be able to look them in the eye if I wasn't doing all that I can to, to uh, help uh, promote this, this issue. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I I said to your your friend that he he said uh, that some people would say this was extreme, and in in fact you're usually down at uh, Flinders Street Station, and he said that some people have been pretty rude actually um, to be mild about it. But this is actually overturning or confronting some element within the Australian psyche that says that uh, you shouldn't actually uh, make a fuss. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, business as usual and people just going about their everyday lives, uh, we need to shock people because what we're facing is shocking and it's alarming. And uh, I think especially with Extinction Rebellion, our actions are so dramatic and uh, so eye-catching that uh, we're succeeding in doing that. And, And this action that I've taking part in this week is, is just another one of those. So our goal is to wake people up. We are the fire alarm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we all need to... Uh, we really all need to get behind this movement and, and hit the streets because we're rapidly approaching some uh, really nasty tipping points and if we hit those, there's, uh, there's no coming back from that. What's the end game for you? How long will this go for? So my original goal was for 10 days, so I'll be finishing up this afternoon at, at 5 o'clock. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really happy with how, how we've gone. I've had incredible support from other Extinction Rebellion rebels. Uh, there's been people here every day to support me, making sure I'm, I'm in the shade and I've got enough water and the arts uh, crew have put together uh, this display for me as well. So... It's just such a great community uh, to be a part of. But as far as objectives go, one of my main objectives was to elevate this issue to the level that it deserves. And we've had incredible media response. So we've been on 3AW, Triple J Hack. We're in The Age today, plus uh, some other media outlets. So I think we've really reached a lot of people with this and just helped... Uh, get get the message out there in the public uh, a little bit more than what it was before we started. Thank you for talking to me, and take it easy. Great, thanks very much. I'm I'm looking forward to having pizza next week. <laughs> thanks, mate. Three C R. 
I would now like to introduce Amelia Young from the Wilderness Society. Uh, Amelia is the Victorian Campaigns Director for the Wilderness Society. Thanks, Sean. And hello, everyone. It's so marvellous to see so many of you here today standing up for nature, loud and proud. I'm jealous of everyone who has a hat or a parasol. It's nice to see that you are shaded. Thank you, Uncle Perry, for that wonderful welcome to country. And I, too, would like to acknowledge that we're standing on land that's stolen. And for all the country that we're arguing for protection and better care for, that land was stolen and sovereignty has never been ceded. Thanks so much to the Victorian National Parks Association, all the staff and all the volunteers who have pulled this rally together. The Wilderness Society really appreciates your leadership on bringing us all here today. So big thanks to VMPA. I've been reflecting on the timing of this rally as well. As Shannon said, this marks five years since the Andrews Labor government came to office. We're also here today because there's an important opportunity before the Andrews government to finally protect the forests of the central west of Victoria. Before the government are recommendations from the Victorian Environment Assessment Council to take better care of forests in the central west region. And I'd like to pay tribute to two people who I know are here today, Gail Osborne and Wendy Radford, who are surely on the last lap of a marathon effort that's been decades long to protect these forests in the central west. Thank you to you and all of the people who've been working with you for this region. I also think that the timing of this rally is very interesting because we're approaching the holiday season. And for Victorians and Australians everywhere, summertime is actually a celebration of nature. We go and spend time at beaches, by rivers, walking in forests, right across this country. And that's because we know very deep down that not only do humans rely on nature to thrive, we rely on nature to survive. So I thank you all very much for being here today, standing in solidarity with nature. Personally, I'm actually also here in solidarity with the tram workers, who today are on strike for better paying conditions to keep Victoria's essential and historic tram services running. So a shout out to those workers who are fighting for better paying conditions for public transport. I was here at Parliament on Monday meeting with parliamentarians about the proposed drilling in the Great Australian Bight. If there's an oil spill in the Great Australian Bight, it's going to reach the beaches that we are here to defend today. And when I was here at Parliament on Monday, the folks from Extinction Rebellion were also here. So like Sean, I'd like to acknowledge your efforts drawing attention to the climate crisis and the impacts on the planet. And thank you for being here today as well as all throughout the week. We also had industrial forestry workers on the steps of Parliament earlier this week. And they were supported by quite a cohort of coalition politicians. And they were there demanding that the Andrews Labor government reverse the decisions it has made about forests and logging and the industry. 
The problem is these decisions can't be reversed and their calls for them to be reversed show how in denial these people are about the reality of the forests. There's a crisis in our forests and that crisis has two faces. One, the wood has run out and the industry is facing inevitable change. Two, there's an extinction crisis in our forests and we have far too many native animals headed for extinction. And these calls for these decisions to be reversed just show that there are still politicians and unfortunately people who work in the industry who don't realise that the game is up. I'd also like to acknowledge the Bush Users Group over the road here because, like us, they care deeply about the bush. They think differently about it and they might like to visit it for different reasons. But I'd like to acknowledge their deep interest in Victoria's regional landscapes and acknowledge that they're here today as well. After the recent forestry announcements, there's a very key message, and that is that the forests must be respected, resuscitated and restored. And for the Wilderness Society, that means that traditional owner ecological knowledge and traditional owner aspirations for country must be at the heart of the management of Victoria's native forests. For years, we've known that there's a crisis in the forest. For years, we've known that because of the impacts of bushfire and overlogging, the wood has run out. For years, we've all been asking for change. We know that the community wants forests managed differently, and we know that the science says that forests must be managed differently, that they must be managed for water and wildlife and climate and recreation. That's why we've put forward bold visions for an alternative future for our forests and for regional communities. That's why we have the Great Forest National Park proposal. It's why we have the Emerald Link Nature Conservation Economy proposal. Both of those will create hundreds, if not thousands, of decent, safe, secure and sustainable jobs in regional Victoria. Those jobs will be keeping the forests standing, not cutting them down, which is a dead loss for everybody. We heard that from a 2017 parliamentary inquiry held right here in this building, which found that the future of the native forest logging industry is in plantations. But since it was elected, the Andrews government has also been in denial. I would say they've actually been in paralysis. It's been very difficult to watch the lack of action, not only for forest protection, wildlife and water security, but also it's been difficult to watch the lack of action for finding a better pathway forward for the workers in the native forest logging industry. One of the headline statements um, of the government's recent announcements was actually that finally though, despite the paralysis and despite the denial, they're now very clear that native forest logging is unsustainable and it can't continue. There's been a series of announcements that has some good headlines in them that show the conversation about native forests has changed. But the detail, I'm sorry to say, is absent or problematic. Just to set through some of the elements of the recent announcement. Australian Paper, the paper company located in Maryvale near the Latrobe Valley that's entirely Japanese owned, has declared that they will now 
transition to plantations. This is something we've been asking for for almost two decades. But beware, because this company has previously promised to fully transition to plantations by 2017. Well, 2017 came and went. The government also promised to protect an extraordinary 90,000 hectares of old-growth forest. But three weeks later, there's still no map showing exactly where that 90,000 hectares of forest is that it has promised to protect. And even worse, they're proposing to protect forests by allowing their logging agency, Vic Forest, to decide what is and what isn't old-growth. The government also said it's going to immediately ban logging in old-growth forests. That means banning it right now. But right now, while we're all standing here on the steps of Parliament, there is logging in old-growth forests in East Gippsland happening at this very moment. So much for the immediate ban. Another element of the recent announcements was a series of IPAs, immediate or interim protection areas. Some very important forests are included in those IPAs. The Strathbogie Forest, thanks to the wonderful community campaign run there, is now protected in an IPA. I can't see anyone from Merbu North, but I'm sure you're here. The Merbu North community ran a fantastic campaign and their forest is now protected. Some very special forests in Tulangi, which I'm sure every person here has heard of, is now spared from logging. But there is more to do. Really important areas around Borbor, Torbrek and West Tyres are still on the chopping block. And inexplicably, the Cottonwood Range in far east Gippsland, which is a stronghold for greater gliders and old growth forest, is still scheduled for logging. And this is what makes a mockery of the government's announcement that the IPAs are going to protect greater gliders. I actually heard uh, Professor David Lindemeyer on the radio earlier this week describe the greater gliders as a ringtail possum in drag, which I thought was a rather <laughs> evocative image of these extraordinary marsupials that are headed for extinction because of the impacts of bushfire, climate change and overlogging. The government knew that, that it had to do something about greater gliders, but shame on the government for having to wait for an industry package to release an action statement for the species that is required by law. That action statement also says it's OK to log in the forest habitat of greater gliders. So we have this extraordinary situation where the government is saying they're protecting forests for greater gliders, yet in the same breath they're sending the loggers in when greater gliders are detected. It's therefore an absolute stretch, Minister D'Ambrosio, for you to say that this is the largest environmental protection policy in the state's history. It's not. And if it was, you wouldn't be waiting 10 years to end native forest logging in 2030. You'd be doing it right now. You've said that native forest logging, industrial forestry at the scale that we've seen it for too long, is unsustainable. That's what the government has said. So why continue for another 10 years? This is a question that a lot of people have asked me over the last few days and weeks since the announcement. Why not do it now? And there's three answers to that question, and they all matter. 
One, it's because of jobs in the Latrobe Valley. I'm sure many of us know that the Latrobe Valley is a place that needs care and attention, and the people who live there deserve respect and to be transitioned into decent, safe and secure jobs, not to have their livelihoods hitched to an unsustainable native forest logging industry. The second reason is that this industry has been very greedy and it's overlogged the forests for far too long. It hasn't grown its own resource. And now that the wood has run out of native forests, the government says it needs to take time to grow wood for the native forest logging industry to transition into. The third reason, and perhaps the most important reason, is a piece of legislation. There's a special act of parliament that guarantees one company, Nippon-owned Australian paper at Maryvale, ongoing supply of wood from these native forests until 2030. Therein lies the exit date. There is no science behind this. It is not based on sustainable yield. It is not based on what the community wants to see. It is entirely based on keeping the wood flowing to a paper factory. There is no question that the gap between what the government has announced and where the community wants forest management to be and where the science says forest management to be is still too great. But together, we can and must close that gap. And that starts with getting as much of the best forest protected now and making sure that you're not using any paper or timber products that come from our precious Victorian native forests. Thank you for coming today. We can't wait till 2030 and we can't wait for extinction. Yeah, great, thank you. I wrote this song, I don't know, back in 1981, out at Uluru. It came from that country. You know, restore the cultural and environmental integrity of this land, of this country. Uh, I want to shout out to the Beecrag mob who are down from southwest Victoria, our home country. Four years we've been trying to chase commercial racehorses off our beaches, the threatened hooded plover, lots of threatened species. And it's terrifying and dispiriting, ladies and gentlemen, as you well know, to realise how far the money can push its influence up into this parliament. Yeah? And we deserve a voice as a sovereign people. You know it. Sing it loud. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. Out here, nothing changes. Not in a hurry, anyway. You can feel the endlessness. With the coming of the light of day Talking about a chosen place They want to sell it in a marketplace Look out When 
just a minute now. Hey. Yeah, standing on a solid rock, standing on sacred ground, living on borrowed time. The winds are change, they're blowing down the line. When the dreaming all began Proud people come They're living here in a promised land Running from a heart of darkness Searching for a heart of light This could be paradise they were standing on a solid rock, standing on sacred ground, living on borrowed time. And the winds had changed, they were blowing cold that night. sails in the sun wasn't long before you felt that sting white man white low white gun don't tell me it's justified cause all down history Captain Cook lied yeah it's hard enough just to survive yeah yeah, it was genocide. Yeah, but are we getting stronger now? Are we getting stronger now? Can we get it together in this country? Yeah, standing on Pulikumpunka, Naranich, Montemilmil Bakatu, Nyuntukurunka, Naranich, Warbekampa Kuchaparani. The solid rock standing on sacred ground, living on borrowed time. And the winds that change keep blowing down the line. Episode 5 of Schools Out. 
This week, we talked with Molly Roberts, who is a dedicated climate change activist. She participates heavily in Extinction Rebellion and school strike campaigns. Today, we discuss her role in these campaigns, some of her experiences campaigning, as well as how you guys can get involved. What campaigns are you currently involved in? I'm a part of Extinction Rebellion Youth. Um, We're fighting for climate and ecological justice. Right now, we are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction and we're facing a climate emergency and our politicians aren't doing anything about it. So that's why I'm involved in XR Youth to force the government's hand into taking action for the people who are on the front lines right now and who are suffering. So what is your role in these campaigns? Extinction Rebellion is a non-hierarchical movement, so we actively try to mitigate power as much as possible. So that means that anyone who believes in 10 values and is acting in the interest of our three demands, then they can act under the banner of XR. As a part of School Strike for Climate, we've got organising teams across the country. Right now we're working towards November 29th, which is a solidarity sit-down for the people who are being affected by the bushfires that are burning across Australia right now. Our aims are to provide a safe space for those who are impacted by the fires and to have their voices heard. We're also calling on governments to increase support for Indigenous land management and rural bioservices uh, and also to raise funds for the bushfire appeal and call on governments to take the climate crisis seriously to avoid further tragic impacts like these. What are some of your experiences protesting? I'm involved in a lot of different climate and environmental movements. All of our protests for whichever movement that I'm acting within are always peaceful and non-violent. They range from bottom-up approaches such as growing your own vegetables or shopping locally or also top-down approaches which are more confronting such as rallies and sit-ins and blockades. Some recent things have been gluing gluing myself to things, blockading corporate criminals who are acting in the interest of money rather than our planet. And people who are less comfortable with doing such confronting or the more theatrical actions, there's always a place within the movement for everyone, such as banner painting, the arts props, organising events, doing hosting talks. What do you think of the theatrical demonstrations? I think that government incompetence to act on the climate crisis has given us no other option. The systems which govern us are broken make civil obedience the greatest threat to our future. Governments aren't listening. We're coming out to the streets in hundreds of thousands. On September 20, we had over 350,000 people all across Australia and still the governments are allowing corporate criminals to get away with killing our planet. We don't have time left for inaction, so it becomes our moral obligation 
to act now and to participate in acts of civil disobedience. What do you think of the people who say that students should stay home and not strike about climate? I think that not enough people are listening to the science. That's why we're on the streets to tell people to listen to the science. When over 97% of scientists have come out and declared a climate emergency, when we can see the effects of the climate crisis happening right now with the hottest recorded day in November in the last 100 years, when Venice last week saw its second highest tide in recorded history, we can see that the effects of the climate crisis are happening right now and that's why we're taking action and that's why we are striking instead of staying in school for education and a future which may not be viable in the next decade. What do you have to say about the legal system? I think that whilst people may have good individual experiences with cops and while cops might be good people in real life, as soon as they put on a uniform, they have pledged to uphold a colonial racist law which has led to deaths in custody, over-representation of minorities in prison. What social media pages do you recommend? You can follow the school strike social media pages on Instagram. We also have Twitter now and Facebook to stay up to date with all of the actions that are coming up and to show your support for the movement um, and how you can get involved. You can also follow the Jabwurong Embassy socials to stay up to date with the front line there. Support is urgently needed on the front lines if you can provide help in any way by just staying one night or going over the weekend. All support is greatly appreciated. The Jabwurong Embassy is about 10 k's out of Ararat. It's currently a blockade, the longest blockade in Australian history. Right now, a bunch of lovely humans are protecting sacred Indigenous birthing trees up on Jaburong country, which are being threatened by the Victorian government and Vic Roads and major road projects who have threatened to destroy this sacred land through the Western Highway duplication. The Pacific Climate Warriors are also a great one to follow. The Pacific Climate Warriors are a network of youth who are standing up in the face of climate change to say that they're not drowning, they are fighting for action on the climate crisis. Youth for Climate Justice is also a great one to follow on Instagram to stay up to date with what's happening with the Australian Youth Climate Network uh, across Australia. Where do you think the future of environmental protests are going? Right now we are seeing barbaric ideas being enforced by our Prime Minister Scott Morrison who at a mining conference recently said that he wishes to enforce laws which prevent selfish acts of boycotting of the fossil fuel industry. We've also seen a crackdown of 
animal rights protests, especially in Queensland. Recently, I was charged with obstructing a roadway and obstructing an officer. And my bail conditions were that I was not allowed to attend a protest which blocked a footpath or a roadway. I refused these conditions and so I went in front of a magistrate and the magistrate ruled that these conditions were illegal and it just shows the corruption of our legal system and of our government. So I think that we do have... We do have a few hurdles to face within our movements. However, what we're doing is necessary to create urgent change and to catalyse the much-needed action on the climate crisis. No more coal, no more oil, keep the carbon in the soil. No more coal, no more oil, keep the carbon in the soil. Thanks for listening, and thanks to 3CR Radio's Solidarity After Breakfast show for hosting Schools Out. You can contact Schools Out by email at schoolsout3cr at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page. We'd like to hear from anyone involved in the school strike movement. We'll be back in two weeks. You're listening to 3CR, 855am. The voice of the community. That's right. You're on Solidarity Breakfast. They obviously get up very early and have their breakfast at a very early time. But anyway, we'll get that right in the future. And on the line, we've got Ian McIntyre. G'day, Ian. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. I uh, was very impressed with your uh, new new endeavour, Sticking It to the Man, which is basically a look at pop culture and its influences on social change. Where did you uh, come up with this idea? Well, um, <clears throat> I've sort of been uh, interested in, in radical history for some time and uh, over the years I'd sort of come across uh, these different novels that were dealing with uh, revolution and counterculture, if, um, I guess mainly looking at those kind of upheavals uh, in the 1960s and 70s and yeah by sort of picking up I just became interested that there were so many novels um, sort of written around this time aimed at mainstream audiences uh, that that kind of dealt with things like um, the rise of second wave feminism um, uh, gay lesbian etc rights um, black liberation uh, wildcat strikes, um, all of that sort of good stuff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was sort of interested in these fictional takes. And um, yeah, the idea for the book just came about from wanting to, I suppose, uh, document and kind of provide an overview of of this fiction in in all its forms. Well, it is really fascinating because I'm a bit of a reader, and I was really fascinated at the uh, range of books that are investigated and the uh, and it brought to mind a whole range of writers that, you know, you'd really want to go and look at. Like the opening uh, chapter in particular is particularly interesting. He He's an extraordinary writer. Uh, so, yeah, Chester Himes. So, yeah, one of the first, um, uh, yeah, the first... Uh 
kind of chapter in the book is about Chester Himes, and he was an African-American crime writer whose work kind of spanned, I guess, from... Uh, well, it spanned from the 50s to uh, the late 60s, early 70s. And, yeah, I mean, his work's fascinating in that... I mean, they're great crime novels. Um, yeah, great titles. That, yes. <laughs> Unbelievable titles. Yes, um, and and often uh, a lot of the books in this era, I guess as today, but particularly in this era, had really amazing, often very catchy and arresting titles and often um, kind of very uh, exciting and sometimes lurid covers because often they weren't um, reviewed in, in mainstream, you know, press or whatever, just the sheer volume of paperback novels and so forth that were coming out meant that... Uh, you really, they really had to make them stand out on the shelf some way. But, uh, yeah, so with Chester Himes, I mean, yeah, not only was he uh, a great sort of uh, hard-boiled crime writer, but his work being set, I guess, in um, kind of poor black communities in the US, um, you know, was very much uh, about entertainment. The novels also kind of um, track changes in those communities from the 50s to to the late 60s. So, I mean, his very last novel, uh, which wasn't completed before his death but was later published, sort of, you know, involves like a sort of black insurrection and so forth, Plan B. Um, and, you know, he sort of touches on different things to do with civil rights and so forth. But his books are also, as I say, very much kind of... Um, uh, you know, thrilling crime tales. But before we do leave him, um, there's elements to him that are really uh, particularly interesting. One, as a black man, uh, he uh, was unable to get work in America, uh, even though it was quite clear he had lots of potential. He, uh, but and so he went to Paris, and he was he considered himself to be a, a literary writer and had to be almost tricked by poverty, I guess, into writing these novels. And what's really interesting about these novels, from what I can gather from the uh, the person who uh, critiques them, is how he actually is quite influential, quite clearly influential in mainstream media in regards to his... Uh, the disintegration of plot lines, in a sense, you know, the exciting nature of his his uh, writing skill, his skillfulness. Yeah, his final novel, um, which well, final novel that was published in his lifetime was Blind Man with a Pistol. Um, yes, which, as you say, it sort of has this disin- disintegrating plot line, which I think was also him uh, trying to reflect on, I guess. Um, the disintegration of black communities at that time, although in some ways black communities were becoming more cohesive than ever. But I think generally he was trying to sort of reflect on the kind of what he saw as the kind of chaos of of the late sixties, um, particularly through the eyes, because he he has these uh, many of his crime novels um, have these two uh, black cop characters, and I think a lot of the disintegration is their kind of world disintegrating where they have been the authorities and the kind of brutal um, 
course of white society in Harlem and now everything's kind of falling apart and they, they don't know who they are anymore and, and, and so forth. So I think it's more that disintegration for an older generation. But um, yes, no, his work, um, he, like uh, a lot of uh, black writers during that era, um, his novels were published in the US, but 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 he found most of his success uh, in Europe. And I mean, France had always um, particularly championed um, hard-boiled and noir crime. Anyway, I mean, it was the country you know where whereas you had a lot of um, white writers as well, like um, Jim Thompson and David Goodis, who in the US were kind of just considered you know, trashy paperback writers, but in France were considered, uh, you know, the kind of worth of their work was recognised um, so that, um, yeah, it was kind of a logical place for him to go. But you had, uh, I guess, more literary writers like Richard Wright and so forth who, um, you know, went and based themselves in Paris at the time as well, basically, yeah, to escape sort of the racism of American society but also uh, of the American publishing industry. And you've uh, this book has uh, tried to uh, show not just American but English and Australian, and uh, it, so it's a fascinating kind of look at uh, stuff that people might have forgotten existed. Very popular stuff at the time. Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess the the focus of sticking it to the man is sort of to um, look at how, um, yeah, as I said before, revolution and kind of counterculture of of the 50s through to, uh, you know, the sort of late 70s were, was portrayed in mainstream fiction. So, I mean, not all of this fiction, you know, I mean, some of it includes things like kind of uh, erotica and, um, you know, things that weren't necessarily... Um, you know, and some of it is uh, by small publishers and so forth. But it was uh, we're sort of looking at books that were aimed, I guess, at mainstream uh, readers uh, that could have been picked up by anybody, and were generally published uh, in paperback. So you know, this this was of course not only a period in which um, you know political movements of the left. Uh, and sort of liberation movements came to the fore, but it was also a period during which people still read a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, where picking up a paperback was, was a general, you know, form of, you know, entertainment. Um, and so, and where you had, you know, basically all these, um, you know, many and varied paperback publishers putting out, you know, relatively cheap books. Well, yeah, that was the revolution, wasn't it? Paperback was the revolution and colourful, lurid covers was the um, was a revolution, but also uh, segmentations of the audience. So uh, there was an interesting discussion in some of the uh, pieces around uh, male gay uh, uh, literature uh, one about uh, dispelling a variety of myths that the person who was uh, looking at them was saying that, you know, they had the impression that uh, uh, before Stonewall riots, uh, there was, um, uh, he had a misconception of what that literature was and uh, also uh, how explicit it was. Yeah, and I think it's also similar with um, a lot of the kind of uh, lesbian uh, 
yeah. uh, pulp novels and so forth. So, I mean, they sort of had slight, obviously, different audiences. I mean, a lot of the um, what's become known as lesby pulp, which which was mainly um, by today's standards, you know, basically fairly, not not. Fairly soft porn with a male audience in in well, and and often not even really all that pornish, really. Most of it is um, it was basically kind of romance tales about women. (laughs) But but at the time, you know, they sort of stuck a you know you know some sort of saucy looking woman, often with a man on a bed looking heartbroken or something. (laughs) Uh, So they they were often aimed at. At male readers, but they had a massive uh, readership amongst women, and similarly, I mean, so you know that kind of had a mixed audience. Um, the gay pulp stuff again, which was often uh, fairly tepid romance stories, uh, were obviously mainly aimed at men. But um, yeah, there, there's an argument made um, in in a few different articles and overviews of these novels that. Um, after Stonewall, you know, there was a kind of dismissal of this earlier literature um, because it was often uh, had to be limited by the conventions of the time and the publishers would often force the writers to insert, um, you know, kind of negative endings where, there, you know, there couldn't be a happy ending to these romances uh, to same-sex love. But uh, at the same time, uh, in looking back, uh, Michael Bronsky and and other writers sort of point out that for all their flaws, these novels sort of gave um, gay and lesbian readers a sense that they weren't the only people in the world who were like them. Uh, and, and that, that it was a continuum were... of sexual uh, predilection rather than a separate human in, you know, like they weren't different humans. They were part of yes. a continuum. And, yeah. and that there were places where they could basically be themselves. And, uh, I mean, you know, and this can be seen particularly in the case of Anne Bannon, uh, who, who wrote uh, a series of um, lesbian romances uh, in, in the 50s and 60s could, because she herself, um, the first time, you know, she came to these, books not as a writer but as a reader she picked up one of these books in a, in a pharmacist or whatever and was kind of like wow you know I'm not the only one sort yeah, of thing yeah. you know and for for people who were kind of yeah in these sort of far-flung places and, and this might have been small towns in America but I've also read um an early uh, an early Australian activist, I'm sorry, whose name doesn't come to mind, but he talked about being uh, in some small town in northern Queensland in, in the 60s and picking up uh, one of these gay romance novels and sort of going, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> there's actually novels about people like me. So, um, I mean, this is pretty yeah, so This is Ursha. For all their flaws, there were some positives and uh, a number of the key novels of the time are kind of explored, but... But within the kind of um, GLBTIQ uh, world of fiction, we also look at um, some of the post-Stonewall stuff. So you have somebody like um, Joseph Hansen, who uh, is a crime writer who arguably wrote the first kind of... um, There had been gay characters in crime novels previously, but he wrote the first kind of uh, crime novels. 
Sorry? A person with a central character. Yeah, well, with a central character who was just himself living in gay scenes. And, um, you know, so that was very much the kind of that post-Stonewall sort of thing where, where, although he had to battle editors at times, he was able now in the 70s to to write the kind of novels that he wanted to. They didn't have to have a tragic um, ending. And, um, you know, similarly, uh, you also had the rise of a whole lot of... um, small lesbian presses uh, and um, so you had a novel like Ruby Fruit Jungle by Rita Mae Brown which was initially published by a sort of small lesbian feminist uh, publisher called Daughters Incorporated but then that novel uh, became a huge success and was then sort of picked up by a mainstream publisher and, uh, you know, ended up becoming a bestseller. And yeah, and then it was history. Uh, the um, That's the other thing. This novel, this uh, piece of uh, work that you've done, Sticking It to a Man with uh, an, uh, your fellow editor, uh, has uh, it brings to mind a whole range of historical things that, were, that uh, I was unaware of. One was uh, the curious fact that a woman wrote uh, in about 1903 the first... Uh, detective novel with a black protagonist, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, mm. uh, the other thing that was interesting particularly was uh, in Australia the writing of the industrial novel. Yes, yeah, so, um, yeah, we've got a couple of different things that touch on, uh, well, a number of different things that touch on uh, Australian novelists, uh, and there's a chapter in there about Betty Collins, who wrote uh, The Copper Crucible, which was a uh, mid-60s novel set in uh, Mount Isa. Um, Of course, uh, in Queensland, and Mount Isa had, you know, a lot of uh, industrial disputation at the time and wildcat strikes and so forth. And, um, yeah, so we've got a chapter about Betty and and her life. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, her... I mean, at the time... In Australia, there was a fairly uh, healthy kind of left-wing um, publisher uh, or publishers, but uh, her novel was sort of done through a more uh, mainstream outfit, Jacaranda, and, and they really, unfortunately, uh, kind of, through fear of libel from mining companies, they kind yeah. of chopped out massive amounts of the novel, but luckily it was later reissued um, because I think she lost about a quarter of the novel or something to to, to the kind of editing process, partially because they didn't like her focus on uh, the finer details of women's lives um, because the book's very much, although it's about... um, class struggle in the mining industry it's it's also you know very much about the kind of and it's a realist novel but it's um you know it's also very much about people's lives so it's it's not just this kind of heroic proletarian struggle sort of thing yeah, 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 yeah. um so yeah and um similarly and but you know her, her also i guess because of her links in the Communist Party of Australia and, and so forth, you know, the, the novel came to be uh, published in the Eastern Bloc and um, similarly, Dimpfner Kuzak, who yeah. was, um, an, a, you know, another female writer of, of the 60s uh, and into the 70s. Her work was also uh, mainly published um, by mainstream 
publishers, but she looked at a whole lot of different issues uh, around things, well, ranging from, I guess, sort of treatment of Aboriginal people um, in the mid-60s uh, and the kind of oppression that they were going through right through to, um, you know, she ended up doing something about sort of Croatian fascist movements. In yeah, the fascinating. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And if people remember, that, you know, them doing, uh, what was it, uh, training camps in uh, the uh, Yarra Rangers. <laughs> yes, and blowing up um, Yugoslavian embassies. And, and, yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. Sorry, travel agents and so forth. And, yeah, um, yeah so, so sort of Dimfina's... Uh, Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> her, her work's sort of in there, and then, and then, the, in terms of Australia, we also look at um, well, there's a myriad of things. But another thing that we kind of look at in the book is Gold Star, um, who were a publisher who probably best known now for the they did a book about the Springbok um, tour and the protests against that in the early '70s against uh, apartheid. And they also did uh, the the Little Red School book, which yep, was yep, it was huge. Uh, yeah, which was by by today's standards, again, you know, a very just a very basic kind of guide for teenagers about things like contraception and drug use. But uh, you it know, caused context, a huge stir at the time. Yes, in the context of the seventies, absolutely shocking. Yeah, <laughs> so no. they published. So Gold Star is very much known for, I suppose, today for their their kind of radical non-fiction, but they also, um, you know, published a whole lot of left-wing novels about, you know, things uh, to do with sort of anti-Vietnam <laughs> War activity and as well as some um, kind of gay romance-type novels too. It's a pretty interesting book. I, I was really impressed. And uh, uh, I noticed that it's uh, being published in... Uh, it's got a, It's been printed in the USA and it's got a, a Californian publisher. Is that... Yeah, so um, this is uh, yeah being published by PM Press, mm. who are who are based uh, in Oakland in the US, and um, yeah, I mean basically they're a, a sort of uh, boutique. Radical left... Sorry, are they a boutique publisher? Um, well, they're, they're certainly a, a small press, but they um, publish quite a wide range of of books, um, all with you know on the left. Um, they do quite a bit of fiction themselves, and they've done things like um, collection of Ursula Le Guin's um, oh, great. poetry, and they do a they do a series of um, sort of novellas, um, which have sort of included people like Marge Piercy and Paul Krasner and um, other, you know quite a number of writers, and they do some fiction, but most of their stuff is is more kind of radical um, non-fiction, um, you know, and history and so forth. So, you know, everything from through from sort of climate change issues through to uh, kind of history, historical stuff about the industrial workers of the world and, and oh, so right. forth. That's really interesting. So, yeah, well, they, they've sort of um, been a really good home for a couple of books of mine. They... Uh, sort of in combination with um, Breakdown Press, they um, did a new edition of um, How to Make Trouble and Influence People, which <laughs> was a book I did about sort of Australian uh, radical and uh, pranking 
pipe history. Yeah, it's uh, a great. So, yeah, great. they've been very good, and um, yeah. So, so the great thing is the book uh, is being um, distributed um, quite widely around the world in a whole lot of different bookstores. And you're doing a launch. You're doing a launch on December the third down at the old bar. Yeah, so that's coming up on Tuesday. So that's at the old bar on uh, Johnson Street, Fitzroy, and it kicks off at six thirty. Um, we'll have um, some readings uh, from from uh, a couple of the classic pulp novels that are included. Uh, I'll be reading from uh, a novel called, uh, you know, uh, called The Last Refuge, which is. Uh, now, you know, we've been discussing, I suppose, some of the more kind of um, genuinely left-wing writers in the um, book today, but uh, there's also, we also sort of cover, I guess, the trashy side of um, the kind of fiction and, and including um, some of the stuff that was sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of more negative about the left and so forth. Um, but uh, The Last Refuge, yes, I'll be, I'll be reading from that. That's kind of a... a novel set uh, in Northern Territory in the 70s where there's a Maoist uprising against yeah. uh, American imperialism. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, um, That's the beauty yeah, of the so book, we'll, isn't it? Um, That's beauty uh, of fiction. Yeah. So we'll have um, literary historian and pulp fiction fan Stuart Kellis is going to be launching the book. Uh, there'll be some readings from um, novels such as The Last Refuge, but um, also things like In the Heat of the Night, which people are probably yeah. familiar with. Um, yes, yes. So we'll be uh, reading from the novel that uh, originally kind of inspired that. Um, we'll have uh, DJ Bruce Milne spinning some music, and um, yeah, there'll be copies of the book available at a reduced price and we'll be giving a free pulp double away with every purchase. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah, that's that's uh, 6.30pm um, this coming Tuesday, December the 3rd at the Old Bar. And before I let you go, apparently you're expecting to do a, sequ- uh, a, a sequel which is all about sci-fi pulp. Yeah, so uh, what happened with this book is, uh, I mean, it's very much an overview to do a sort of definitive text would have to be about you know, 20 volumes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, and you'd be reading forever. Make, <laughs> yeah, we have tried to make it a very solid overview and we've included you know, 350 um, full-colour covers. Oh, the yeah, book. they're fantastic. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, we, it got so big, the project, that we decided to... that. Uh, we well, fortunately, uh, that yeah, we'd have to take the the sci-fi um, stuff and put it into its own volume. So yeah, uh, in a year or two, expect to see uh, a book which focuses on the radical science fiction uh, from the fifties uh, up until nineteen eighty. Thanks, Ian. All right, thank you. Yo, peace. This is Rod Stars. What up? This is G1. This is DJ Illinois. And together we are Rebel, Rebel Diaz. And whenever we are here, we listen to 8.55 AM, 3CRD Digital, 3CR.org.au. You already know what it is. Free Radical Radio. Let's go. 3CR. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when, just when we thought we could breathe easily this morning, knowing the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers would be forced to act with integrity or else, hopes dashed.
the evil unions will continue to be evil, thanks to the one notion, if that, uh, if that, that appalling Hoonsun, well, more particularly, thanks to the gang of crooks on the worst pack bank board, no sacking them for lack of integrity, no government appointing a commissioner to run the show. And somehow, in the contortions that passes her mind, that appalling thought that was a bit rough. So the evil union bosses will be rushing down to the next worst pack board meeting, or what's left of the board, loaded with cartons of champers to say a big genuine thank you and happy Christmas. On the other hand, that man of integrity, Senator Erica Betts on the bosses, explained that appalling's uncharacteristic behaviour as a lack of integrity and honesty, uh, which is far more credible, but of course not uncharacteristic. The loss was even more disappointing as the government's case for smashing the evil unions was reinforced this week when the registered, brackets, evil unions, not good caring employers, organisations, commissions, raid with the full complement of the mainstream media in tow on the AWU, now there's a dangerous lot, AWU, just to get former Socialist Party Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition, whose name proved accurate, was ruled in the federal court as illegal. Given the mob who carry out illegal raids at the government's bidding is the very body that would police the integrity or lack of by the evil unions. Well, evil union, because the whole thing's really aimed at we know who. All of which should make us a bit more careful about before popping those corks, as former train killer Jackie Lumpen remains a chance to change her mind sometime this week that hasn't, if it aims specifically at we know who. And as for that appalling, well, she's a minute-by-minute proposition. Still, given her track record, we can understand why the government would think she's a walk-up start. And the smash the union side has the support of that oh-so-sensible centre all over the place party. See, do a deal, get some concession not even remotely related to the issue, and smash the unions. Oh, and our old mate, the Troubler-Wazzy Industry Profits Group, said the vote was a victory for union thuggery that will embolden the CFMEU, the we-know-who and ordered the government to bring the bill back immediately, because caring employers hate thuggery. Speaking of integrity, when the caring business class gets sprung roughly once a day, give or take, in their case, no give and all take, they always assure us they will take all steps to redress that for which they were sprung and about which they had no idea. It was the cleaning woman at some local branch, if there's any local branches left. Uh, 23 million charges involved in child pornography. Uh, I think that one's covered by button C. Press button C. We understand the gravity of the issues and reiterate our deepest sorrow for failings by worst pack. We are determined to urgently fix... We'd think an automatic response would sort out a split infinitive, wouldn't we, anyway? To urgently fix these issues and lift our standards to ensure our anti-money laundering and other financial crime processes are industry-leading. As a major bank, we play a critical role in helping law enforcement agencies prevent criminals from carrying out illegal activity. Uh, but, but, but you'd be preventing yourself. You're the criminal. We put to worst pack chair, brackets temporary, Lindsay maximised profit stead. 
in some special circumstances, would play a critical role in not helping law enforcement agencies. On insignificant matters like corporate corruption, which is sort of a tautology and for which doesn't require a specific integrity bill, remember, during the Her Most Gracious Majesty's banking con mission, a bloke called Terry McMaster Crime collapsed in the witness box as a few questionable habits by his financial advisory company were put to him. Suggestions it was financially bad advisory for the client, but good advisory for Terry. Well, this week he was found guilty in the federal court for engaging in misleading and deceptive conduct, sentence pending. But don't worry, he plans to take action over that guilty verdict. He wants to sue his lawyer, presumably for losing the case, not winning the unwinnable. This is promising because if clients could all sue their lawyer when they lose, this opens up a whole new area of lucrative, ridiculously overpriced fees for the legal profession. And the loser in that case could, uh, well, it goes on and on. The US of the UN of the US of the World Secretary for World US of State Mike Pompeo or else declared the US of no longer regards the Zion settlements on other people's land, which Zion knows is really expanded Zion land, as illegal because he said regarding them as illegal has not helped the, the peace process peace process. That's news in itself. Anyway, we look forward to Mike giving us a slightly more detailed explanation for that logic, although we imagine the US of will now impose sanctions on any country that continues to call them illegal and impose crippling penalties in the US of court system. Because obviously opposing Zion stealing or, sorry, taking over more expanded Zion land is a threat to peace, to the peace process. Mike said the issue of Zion taking more and more expanded Zion land from the people who were thrown out of their country in the first place and who remain a threat to peace by continuing to live next door to what was their country, non-people with a non-land, the issue should be resolved in the Zion court system. The non-land, non-people should feel secure between the US of court system and the Zion court system. Uh, what about the non-land, non-people court system? Clearly, they could not be unbiased and neutral. They would assume the non-land, non-people have some rights in all this. In fact, that assumption by the non-land, non-people remains the barrier to the peace process. On similar brilliant unbiased logic, as we absorb the cheery news from a UN of the US of the UN of the World Report that the world is heading to exceed the Paris commitments by oodles, the Lord Rupert of Wapping usual suspect columnist who tells us not only is climate change a warmest conspiracy, but the reverse is happening raced off with the Logic of the Week award. See, as we know, South Trublawazi relies heavily on renewable energy, but in the catastrophic weather conditions last week, there were bushfires in South Trublawazi. And the usual suspect columnist said this proved beyond any reasonable doubt there is no such thing as climate change. That's real science at work, scientific proof. Unlike the climate change crap, actual real scientists preach. Usual suspect columnist, your Logic of the Week award is on its way.
That UN report said countries would produce 150% more coal in 2030 than would be consistent with limiting warming to 2 degrees and a mere 280% more consistent with a 1.5 degrees and hard as it is to believe, it got stuck into true blue to us when we all know we're meeting our commitment in a canter. As one of the world's leading coal exporters, it raved on, and the second largest producer of liquid natural gas, there is a contradiction between True Blue Aussie's pledged emission reductions with state and federal government support for coal and gas mining through $12 billion per year tax-based subsidies and expedited mine and drilling planning approval. It went on and on, concluding proposed large coal mines and ports, if fully completed, would represent one of the world's largest fossil fuel expansions, around 300 million tonnes per year of added coal capacity. Well, obviously, as the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, would respond in, in such, to such a one-sided nonsense, those figures must conform to meeting our commitments in a canter. And Angus has shown what a whizzy is with figures, capable of getting it correct down to the nearest six or seven million making us wonder why all those people led by callow, brainwashed, not-so-dear little children keep taking to the streets like yesterday and Thursday brainwashed people from all over the state gathering at Parliament to fight for nature, as they claimed, as if the air and the trees and the water and the flora and the fauna are under some threat. Why, the government stopped the logging at native forests, or more correctly, has given the caring employers only another 11 years to chop them down, which the industry and unfortunately the union claim isn't near long enough to adjust. Oh, and also, unfortunately, there was so much news Thursday, people coming together from all over the state to fight for nature obviously wasn't news. And doesn't the word fight show how aggressive and nasty these people are? Any wonder the government ignores them. Oh, and yesterday morning there was so little space between the ads with the media making a killing out of Black Friday, I checked and thought, no, it's not the 13th, it's just that retail sales are obviously slow and so the great marketers have come up with yet another gimmick to detach people from their money with the promise of illusionary bargains. Finally, on this Medivac bill on which that appalling Hoonsun is a walk-up start, we have to keep the no-proper-papers queue-jumping illegal boat people terrorists out, and Jackie Lumpen is working on some side deal or other, like let's send them to New Zealand. Thank goodness Big Supremo scuttled them more last son, whose week that was name emanates from his term as Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, and his successor, Constable Peter Duffer, are firmly committed to ensure sick and injured illegal boat people do not receive any medical treatment. As Peter warns, they'll not only steal our hospital bed, they'll steal our homes as well. Sure, like me, listener, you would have been terrified when we heard that. A big thank you, Pete. And when they die without medical treatment, that's one less terrorist to worry about. Good morning. 
Yes, good morning, Kevin. And uh, we're coming to the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, I've got too much material, so you're going to have to uh, hold your breath for Joan Kotzich for next week. Uh, But we're going to go out with uh, a taster from the uh, Spirit of Eureka dinner, the 165th anniversary of the Eureka Stockade. And we're going to hear from Dirk. He gave a great speech. He's he's from uh, the Spirit of Eureka. And as I said, we'll do follow-ups next week. All right, ladies and gentlemen, comrades and friends, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's commemoration of the 165th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. My name is Dirk and I'm one of the co-conveners of Spirit of Eureka in Victoria. I'd like to start tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we gather tonight, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We are gathered on stolen land Sovereignty of this land has never been ceded, and Spirit of Eureka stands in solidarity with First Peoples in their struggle for justice, self-determination, and against the ongoing colonisation that continues continues today. First, I'd just like to say a few words of thanks. Uh, Thanks to the MUA for hosting us here again tonight. They are... They're great supporters of, uh, of the progressive movement and uh, they always, always um, offer their venue for, for all sorts of meetings and things, so it's really greatly appreciated. And lastly, I want to thank everyone who's come along tonight. You could have chosen to be anywhere else, but you're here with us to commemorate this important anniversary in the history of Australia's working class struggles. And it's an important uh, event that has great... Uh, resonance with our struggles that are going on today, both uh, for workers and should I mention that Pauline Hanson did us a favour today? (laughs) Alright, alright, enough of that. (laughs) Settle down please. The theme we chose for tonight's event is continuing the struggle for an independent Australia and the fight for workers and democratic rights. The connection to the ongoing fight for workers and democratic rights is probably pretty obvious. Eureka was an inspiration in the formative years of the trade union movement and its values of solidarity, defiance and militant struggle continue to resonate in union and workers' struggles today. Eureka also played a pivotal role in the formation of Australian democracy and the legacy of the rebels' fight against injustice and unjust laws remains just as relevant today as our democratic rights are slowly being eroded by a creeping police state. But what about Australian independence? It will be 165 years ago tomorrow, on November 29, 1854, that over 10,000 gold miners and their supporters from some 20 different countries and cultures gathered at Bakery Hill on the diggings near Ballarat in a mass meeting. They met in protest and rebellion against the gross injustices of the miners' licence and the harsh and undemocratic conditions imposed on them by the brutal and oppressive British colonial government. And on that day, a flag was raised for the first time. That flag. This flag. Today, of course, we know it as the Eureka flag, but it it wasn't immediately called the Eureka flag. Henry Seacamp, the editor of the Ballarat Times, who was a great agitator of the demands of the miners at, at the time, he referred to it as the Australian ensign, or the Australian flag. Sir Charles Hotham, in a report to his superiors back in Britain, 
who was the Lieutenant Governor of uh, the Colony of Victoria at the time, he called it the Australian flag of independence. And so it was. The rebels were in open defiance against the British colonial government. The general thrust of their actions and their demands was for an independent republic that gave rights and liberties to the ordinary working people. That was then. 165 years later, Spirit of Eureka continues to organise around the idea of a genuinely independent Australia. But independence from what? And for who? And what might an independent Australia look like? Certainly it would be a republic with a new constitution that does away with the historically outdated British monarchy as our head of state, and we would probably have a new flag. But that alone would not be enough to make us independent because the power that dominates this country is no longer British. We are now part of a different empire, the US empire. An independent Australia would not be integrated into and subordinated to the US military and its plans for imperialist wars around the world. It would have an independent and peaceful foreign policy based on the principles of self-defense and mutual respect between sovereign countries. It would end the US-Australia alliance, remove US Marines from Darwin, uh, remove US military bases from Australian soil such as Pine Gap in the Northern Territory and Northwest Cape in WA. Our governments, both Liberal and Labor, would not be falling over themselves to pay tribute to Uncle Sam and our special joined at the hip relationship with America. A truly independent Australia would be independent of all big powers. An independent Australia would have a government that does not abandon but protects and defends the rights of its peoples and citizens like Julian Assange. Of course, of course, his only crime has been to expose the war crimes of the US and allow ordinary people around the world the chance to learn the truth behind the actions of our governments and major corporations. Julian Assange should be greeted as a great Australian. But instead, our government ignores his democratic rights because the US demands it. Economically, Australia is dominated by foreign capital and multinational corporations, most of which pay very little or no tax at all. Take our huge mining and resources sector as just one example. It's about 90% owned by foreign investors. Australia is currently the second biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world. Qatar in the Middle East is the biggest. The single largest producer and exporter of Australia's gas is the American energy giant Chevron. Then there's ExxonMobil and Shell and a few other multinationals, all of which are climate-destroying criminals. These multinationals export so much of our gas that there are now plans underway to import gas because apparently we have a gas shortage. I'll say it again, Australia, the second largest exporter of LNG is about to start importing LNG because we don't have enough gas to meet the needs of the Australian people. Does this sound like the logic of a country that is independent? That's right. <laughs> well done. In 2018, Qatar made over $26 billion from the taxes on the sale of its gas. Australia exported a similar amount of gas but received less than $1 billion. What does that mean for people like you and me? It means billions and billions of dollars that we don't have to spend on public schools, hospitals, teachers, nurses, 
apprentices, infrastructure, public transport, public housing, pensions, new start. The list of services for the Australian people that we could fund with that money is endless. But we can't, because we don't own this country. The multinationals do. And, and that's who would benefit from a truly independent Australia. Us, the working people of this country. An independent Australia that's run to serve the interests of the people, not to maximise the bottom line of the multinationals. This control of Australia by the multinationals distorts our economy. It has practically turned Australia into a giant quarry. We sign free trade agreements that sell out local workers and industries and strip away our national sovereignty. It has meant the loss of our manufacturing base and the destruction of our local shipping and maritime industry. And it's something that's quite remarkable when you consider that we are an island nation and that is now, we are now almost completely dependent on foreign flagged vessels to, to supply us with fuel and goods. And our friends at the MUA could tell us all about that. So that's why we say continuing the struggle for an independent Australia is just as relevant as it was 165 years ago when the Eureka rebels first raised their flag. I just want to say one final thing about the struggle for an independent Australia, and in many ways it's probably the most important. In 1788, this country that we call Australia was invaded by British colonialism. What followed was a genocide and dispossession of the First Peoples who have lived on this land for tens of thousands of years. The massive amount of natural resources and wealth that this country possesses has been stolen from the First Peoples. We can't change the past, but to create the future that we want to see, we need to face up to and recognise that past. And that's why the struggle for an independent Australia must stand in solidarity with the First Peoples' struggles for justice, self-determination and against colonisation. Because genuine... Because genuine Australian independence can never be achieved without the sovereignty of Australia's First Peoples. Our struggle and vision for an independent Australia cannot be a racist one. It must be a multicultural one that takes to the heart the true spirit of Eureka, the spirit expressed so clearly by Italian miner Raffaello Carboni when he called on his fellow diggers, irrespective of nationality, religion or colour, to salute the Southern Cross as the refuge of all the oppressed from all countries on earth. Those are the sorts of values and principles that spirit of, that spirit of Eureka fights for, and that's the kind of vision of Australian independence that spirit of Eureka organises towards. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.